Hope this finds you doing well. On the evening of January 27, 1986, there was an emergency conference call between NASA managers and engineers with its rocket booster contractor, Morton Thiokol, regarding the decision to proceed with launching the Space Shuttle Challenger the next day. As author David Epstein writes, the weather reports for the launch predicted unusually cool temperatures for the Florida launch pad, and many engineers from Morton Thiokol were concerned about the rubber O-rings used in the joints of the vertical sections of the rocket boosters. These O-rings prevented the hot burning gases from escaping through the joints, thereby causing a leak. The engineers' concern stemmed from a situation called blow-by. The rubber O-rings would harden when the temperature got colder, preventing it from expanding as quickly as it was designed to, thereby giving the burning gases the opportunity to blow by the O-ring and shoot right through the rocket booster wall. On two previous shuttle flights, the Thiokol engineers found evidence of blow-by, but the shuttles still returned safely. This conference call had 34 managers and engineers. Every manager was an engineer from three locations. One Thiokol engineer, Roger Boyce-Jolloy, presented the findings of the previous two blow-by instances, including photographs. One instance occurred during a warm 75-degree flight with minor soot streaks coming from an O-ring, while the other flight occurred during a launch in 53-degree weather. A lot of burning gas had blown by during this colder flight, leaving a large soot streak on the exterior of the rocket booster. In Boyce-Jolloy's opinion, the reason the cooler launch photos were worse than the warmer one was due to the cold temperature impacting the performance of the O-rings to seal the joint at ignition. He was right, but he did not have the data to prove it. Boyce-Jolloy was asked to quantify his concerns, but he could not. As a refresher, quantitative data is data that can be counted, measured, and expressed using numbers. It is objective, to the point, and conclusive. Qualitative data is descriptive and conceptual. It can be categorized based on traits and characteristics. It is subjective, interpretive, and exploratory. As an example, take a particular bookcase. Quantitative data would explain it as being 3 feet tall, weighs 100 pounds, has 15 books on it, has 3 shelves, and sells for $1,500. Qualitative data would explain the bookcase as made of wood, built in Italy, is deep brown, has golden knobs, smells like oak, and has a smooth finish. NASA had developed an extremely strong technical culture built on quantitative data. They had rigorous flight reviews that were productively adversarial in nature. Managers grilled engineers and forced them to produce data that back up their assertions on projects. This process had worked remarkably for NASA. The space shuttle was the most complex machine ever built, and all 24 flights had returned safely. This was the environment Mr. Boyce-Jolloy was operating in, attempting to express genuine concern for the O-rings, but he found himself without the familiar tools NASA required in a quantitative culture. Initially, during this conference call, two Thiokol vice presidents and the director of the rocket booster program heeded their engineer's advice and supported a no-launch decision due to the forecasted cold temperatures. 
Since the Challenger had already been cleared to launch, this would be an 11th hour reversal. When NASA pressed Thiokol to provide an allowable temperature range for a safe launch, they recommended setting the lower temperature limit for safe shuttle flight at 53 degrees based on the previous experience. The next morning's forecasted temperature was below 53 degrees. NASA's manager was taken aback. This was setting an entirely new technical criteria for launches that had never been discussed previously. Initially, the temperature for shuttle launches ranged from 31 to 99 degrees. Now that limit is suddenly being moved to a more restrictive range and was not backed by quantitative data. Boistuloy was again asked for data to support his O-ring concerns, but he did not have any more than what he had already provided. NASA management did not agree with Thiokol's reasoning for a 53-degree limit. NASA called it tradition rather than technology. This particular NASA manager found it frustrating and later called this decision dumb. With the conference call at an impasse, a Thiokol vice president called for a five-minute, quote, offline caucus. They concluded they did not have any more data to provide NASA for substantiating their 53-degree temperature claim. The Thiokol leadership returned to the conference call and announced their new decision. Proceed with launch. On January 28, O-rings failed to properly seal a joint in the wall of one of the rocket boosters. Burning gas blew by the O-ring and shot right through the joint to the outside of the rocket wall. 75 seconds after liftoff, the Space Shuttle Challenger exploded, killing all seven crew members. During the accident investigation, they found Thiokol engineers' concerns were based only on a few photographs of soot streaming from the rocket booster joints based on two launches. One event occurred during a warm temperature launch and the other one during a cool temperature. Skeptics suggested this soot had been trapped in the joints from previous launches and did not indicate a leak. Roger Boistuloy thought the photographs were absolutely telling, but it was a qualitative assessment. NASA's manager later said he would have felt completely foolish taking Thiokol's no-launch decision up his chain of command. Without solid quantitative data, he could not have defended it. The very tool that NASA had used to make it such a consistently successful organization, quantitative data, suddenly worked against them in a situation where their familiar menu of data did not exist. Reason without numbers was not accepted. At NASA, accepting a qualitative argument was like being told to forget you are an engineer. When faced with an unfamiliar challenge, NASA leadership failed to drop their familiar tools. There are other instances of this resistance to discard familiar tools when faced with unfamiliar situations. Psychologist and organizational behavior expert Carl Weick noticed this trait across experienced groups. Navy seamen who refused direct orders to discard their steel-toed shoes when abandoning a ship, rendering them unable to swim due to the extra weight or resulted in punching holes in life rafts. Fighter pilots in disabled planes refusing orders to eject. Elite wildland firefighters refusing orders to drop their tools and flee an oncoming fire. 
Wyke noticed these groups, and others like them, became rigid under pressure and would, quote, regress to what they know best. They would bend an unfamiliar situation to a familiar comfort zone, as if trying to will it to become something they actually had experienced before. For many, their tools are what they know best, and discarding them could create an existential crisis. Quote, dropping one's tools is a proxy for unlearning, for adaptation, and for flexibility, Wyke wrote. It is the very unwillingness of people to drop their tools that turns some of these dramas into tragedies. These professions serve as examples and metaphors for normally reliable organizations that cling to trusty methods, even when they lead to bewildering situations and decisions. Think of the effect the pandemic has had on business across the spectrum. Many have reevaluated, have pivoted in response, and have developed new ways to serve their customers. But others have not, and continue to cling to their familiar tools, hoping to create a familiar environment by doing so. As Air Force pilots, we trained to adapt quickly to embrace unlearning, adaptation, and flexibility if the situation warranted. Yes, quantitative decisions were important, but there were scenarios where qualitative data ruled the day. During our simulator training, we practiced a scenario where we would lose two of our four jet engines shortly after takeoff. It is a very critical point. We are airborne, but very low and slow, and we only have half of our thrust available. The jet flies fine on three engines, not so well on two, especially if you still have a lot of aerodynamic drag occurring on the plane like we did in this scenario. Our landing gear will steer, was still down and our flaps were out. The jet will not sustain flight in this configuration. We can raise the landing gear, but we are below the airspeed airspeed where we can safely retract the flaps. The flaps are required at lower airspeeds for the wings to produce the necessary lift for the airplane to stay aloft. If we raise the flaps too early, we remove the wing's ability to generate this lift, likely causing the aircraft to stall and plummet toward the earth. On the other hand, we cannot simply maintain flight and accelerate because the remaining two engines are not providing enough thrust. What do we do? The answer is to adopt unlearning. With the two engines pushed up to maximum thrust, we would point the nose down toward the ground, a very unnatural thing to do being so low, and we would accelerate in this descent. We were trading altitude for airspeed. The precise regulation flap retraction speed is actually set within an aerodynamic safety range, so we would retract the flaps before reaching this rigid airspeed while descending, knowing the descent provided us the necessary airspeed while removing the critical element, drag on the aircraft due to the flaps. Although we may end up screaming along just a few hundred feet or a hundred feet above the rooftops, each time we practice this scenario, Remember, we did this in the simulator, not in real life. We saved the aircraft. Carl Wyke found when professionals were faced with a situation outside of their usual bounds, their familiar can-do environment should have been swapped with a make-do culture. 
as with the pandemic's effect on the world at large, there is a need to improvise rather than throw out information that does not fit the established paradigm. One of the investigators on the Challenger Accident Board admonished a NASA official when this official reiterated that Boisjoloy's O-ring data did not prove Thiokol's initial desire to delay the launch. Quote, when you do not have any data, the investigator said, you have to use reason. It reminds me of a saying, just because you can does not mean you should. Just because you can launch the shuttle does not mean you should. So what might be some of your familiar tools? Professionally, are there instances where the quantitative process reigns supreme, choking out the green shoots of qualitative reasoning that may prove to be the best course of action? Does your organization's leadership adopt flexibility in allowing differing opinions to be heard, to be genuinely considered, possibly in contrast to the quantitative data regarding a situation? How about in your personal life? Do you give ample credit to that gut feeling you get? Can your partner or spouse bring a viewpoint to the discussion that gets the consideration it deserves, even if they are not the expert? How about for your children? Are they confident, knowing they can respectfully voice their opinion on an issue, and that it will be given an environment to be shared and to be heard? A team, an organization, a family can be both reliable and flexible. Yes, there are fundamentals, but these are tools used for sense-making in a dynamic environment. There are no tools that cannot be dropped, reimagined, or repurposed to navigate an unfamiliar challenge. Even the most sacred tools, the tools that can be so taken for granted they become invisible. But they are still there, and they are still, at their core, merely tools to assist you if needed or laid aside if they do not. I hope this has been of some help. Best to you.